Welcome to Coping with COVID-19, an editorially independent program from the editors of Modern Aesthetics Magazine and Practical Dermatology Magazine. In this episode, a panel of aesthetics experts weighs in on the potential reactions to the COVID-19 vaccine among patients treated with dermal fillers. Panelists include Drs. Joe L. Cohen, Michael Gold, Doris Day, Mark Nestor, Joel Schlesinger, Amy Taub, and guest Adam Jackson, an infectious diseases clinical pharmacy specialist. I know most of us have heard about the, the filler and, and the issue and, and, you know, um, and the three cases, I think, that have been reported in the Moderna trials that have no data associated that anybody can find with them. Um, one was, you know, several injections in the lips, right, Joel, Joel and Joel, several injections in the lips. We don't know when they were. One was six months after a filler injection, and one was two weeks after a filler injection. We don't well, know the fillers. I'd, I'd, like to, I'd like to say my, my feeling on that is that this is such garbage uh, data that has been sent out there. And, and it's really frustrating that uh, for those of us, I think everybody on this call who does clinical trials, we understand the responsibility when we conduct a clinical trial to, uh, to collect adverse events uh, appropriately. And the fact that those adverse events each have their own sheet that is, that is tabulated and then submitted to the company. How come we are not getting the adverse event sheet on these adverse events so we can actually go to it and look and see what the, what the clinician who was there uh, thought? Additionally, the clinicians who are tabulating these events are not dermatologists. They're whatever. They may be a family practitioner. They may be somebody who is a, an, a retired uh, gastroenterologist and he's just running clinical trials for some group in some city because they have to push through 30, 40,000 people into this trial. So anybody who takes these as anything close to truth is deluding themselves. So, so Joel, I think here, here is the issue. I look, I think this is a real phenomenon, okay? Very rare, but real. And the reason I feel that way is that we've seen these reactions with other immune uh, reactive situations, that there's reports right now of people getting the vaccine separate and apart for this. I think the, the problem that, that they had with the trial is nobody ever thought to even think about a filler reaction. So th there wasn't anything in place necessarily when you're doing the clinical trials to record this and understand what's going on. I think though that historically, uh, people have seen this kind of response from other vaccines, number one, and number two, certainly from other immune inflammatory conditions. My favorite one uh, was somebody I, I'm very close to, I know, who ended up getting otitis externa and on the side of a severe otitis externa started getting uh, uh, edema and erythema everywhere she had filler on just that side, on the, on the malar surfaces, on the eyebrow, you know, uh, on the gel, just on that side. When the, and, and it was just incredible where it was, that kind of, kind of traveled, put on antibiotics, when the external, uh, the otitis external went down, the, it went away. So this is definitely a real, a, a, a real phenomenon. I'm not so willing to accept though, that it's a real phenomenon yet until I see actual data. Adam, what do you think? So I'm gonna, I, I think I'm gonna piece the two of you together because I, I actually agree with both of you, which is A, uh, I, I didn't know dermal filler anything before I saw it. 
in this Moderna trial. And then I started Googling and started doing PubMeds. Um, I, I would say that it, it appears from, from what's out there that there is a phenomenon of, of inflammatory, whether that is immune mediated or not, inflammatory reactions um, when something occurs in, a in some people who have dermal fillers. Um, I've run across that both in terms of like you were saying, hepatitis externa, there's cases with influenza infection and cases with other vaccinations. So I think there is a phenomenon Funny enough, I'm not a dermatologist, so just looking at it from my perspective, my immediate, where I immediately go is, is this a contraindication? Is it a precaution? And my answer is no and no. Like, right. you'll need to get this vaccine. You're going to get this vaccine. I happen to know you have dermal filler. Now, you know, depending upon which doc she's talking, he or she's talking, you may not. Know. <laughs> but, you know, you may keep an eye out for it, but like, number rubber meets the road, still get the vaccine. This may happen. I will also say not only is it three cases out of that trial was 30,000. Um, if you look up derm stuff in the Pfizer study, and by the way, they, they gotta have the same profiles. The only difference between these are the lipid nanoparticles. And even those are not huge differences. Um, the mRNA is, is identical. It may be dose related, but I doubt it. Um, as a guess. But anyway, we've had, you know, almost 5 million doses at least administered in this country. Right. So, and there have been more, but, more reports. But there are reports. There have been more reports. There's been quite a few reports. Right. You know, Which is why I say it's, it's a phenomenon, but not nearly to the either extent in terms of probability or severity to warrant right. some... So, so, yeah. so, so we agree, Adam, with severity. Here's the issue, though. We don't know the ends here. So in the filler trials, in the Moderma and the Pfizer trials, especially understanding the populations that got it, there may have been 0.01% of the individuals who had fillers in. So the actual, you know- uh, Your denominator is- like who had fillers who had reactions are probably, you know, much more than three out of 15, you know, a thousand, et cetera. All these other people, and they're saying, well, we need to put this in our consent forms now. Are you gonna do that? The answer is I already did. So it, it absolutely can't hurt to go in the consent form. There's and no. If you have a COVID that you have a COVID vaccine and you and you have fillers. There's a risk of having a reaction. There is a. Uh, I think the way it is, there is a, a remote risk of having reaction. And and I'll tell you where it's coming up. It's not coming up. I'm I'm getting calls from patients who have fillers, and I'm saying absolutely get the vaccine. There's no question about it. this. Is your life where it's coming up? Which is interesting is. Patients who are coming in for fillers saying, should I hold off the fillers a little bit until after I get the vaccine? Mark, I think, I hate to say this, but I do think it's going to diminish our filler population for a few months. I oh, really sure do. it will. No, it will. But that's not the issue. The, the, that question is what has been, you know, what patients have been asking for the last couple of weeks now, oh, whatever, since this came out. And my response to them is, it's very rare, but if you want to wait I until after you have the vaccine, I have no issue with that. So, you and know, my question is this. I've, I've had this in my consent form for two years already around vaccines. I have been saying to patients around dental work and vaccines that I would have them ideally wait for two weeks after, dental, after um, filler to get a vaccine. Um, and a day after dental work. So I think there's a bacteria, anything that's gonna make your immune system somewhat reactive, I try to put a little bit of space and I do in my mind what I think is a reasonable amount of time for your immune system to react and then calm down. 
And I tell them, if you have a vaccine, wait till two weeks after in order to have filler. So, right? so, so that's already been there. So, but my question is this, is that I, I believe it makes sense that if you create immunogenicity and you have anything that's even slightly foreign, your body's immune system can react. So is this a reaction to a general immune response or is this a specific COVID reaction? No, and so let me, let me be clear. There are two different things that you describe. One is more of a biofilm. The issue of dental work where you're getting bacteremic and you have filler there probably is much more an issue of a biofilm versus an immune reaction. And I think what, what we're talking about is that it is a generalized uh, immune sensitivity. And, and the, I'll tell you why, because it's not all fillers, number one. We know that certain fillers, Vicloss, for instance, you get more reactions to than others. That's been documented very, very well. So what happens is that you have this general revving up the immune system when you get a vaccine, and you're going to get things that are going to be separate and apart. A great example of that is why people you know, get muscle aches, why they get other things. It's part of the, the overall immune revving up response from that perspective. So, so I think that in certain people who may have a slight immune sensitivity to, to fillers or anything, something, you know, in either the crosslink or et cetera on there, but don't get a response until you really rev up the immune system with this. All of a sudden you're getting an acute response, not a long-term response, an acute response. So the question is, how long does that reactor genicity last? There are people that get redness. There's people that get swelling. There's people that get pain in their arm. And we don't know anything about those two patients that had facial swelling and that one patient that may have had either angioedema or had lip filler sort of sensitization. So if we look at that, my question to Adam last week was, how long does that immune stimulation really last in terms of revving things up? Because I've told patients what Doris did for a long time. I've seen somebody after a shingles vaccine who got a very similar facial swelling and that patient who had the lip swelling had had that type of angioedema pattern after a flu vaccine in the past. So right. this is there's nothing new here. The big question is how long does that kick up of the immune system right. last? And specifically in those two or three patients, did they have other manifestations of reactogenicity from the vaccine that would indicate that they had some sort of systemic immune response? Did they have malaise? Did they have fever? Did they have localized pain? Were these people who, you know, if we see somebody and they're on the anaphylaxis spectrum for other types of things, we exhibit some caution because we expect them to potentially have an issue with something else. In this same cohort, do we expect them to potentially cross-react to the, to the filler in there plus have a significant immune response in the arm or a fever? And they, and they were treated too, right, Joel? So we, we don't know what filler, we don't know what treatment. But they got treatment. They got treatment, and we don't know the duration of their symptomatology. Right. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, when this information came out, and somebody non-specifically just said, yeah, there was some dermal filler, possibly related swelling, it would be nice to know, you know, if it was swollen in the face in general, or if it was swollen where they had filler. Right. What type of filler did they have? How was it treated? Because all these different protocols are different. They talked about antihistamines and steroids, but there are some people from, you know, if you suspect a biofilm that you'll put people on an antibiotic. And then in some cases you can't tell if it's potentially 
a biofilm or some sort of sensitization and you put people on like clarithromycin as an anti-inflammatory and an antibiotic. And we've seen that be helpful in these so, cases of nodularities before. So go ahead, Adam, go ahead. Uh, so, so one, I mean, obviously this is just an, an, an immune phenomenon. Doris, you would ask, is this COVID specific or not? It's not COVID specific. That being said, if you were to, if I had to put money, like if, if someone were to say, bet on which vaccine is more likely to cause a dermal filler uh, reaction of some type, um, COVID vaccines in general would be a higher on my list because it is clearly more immunogenic because of that spike protein. Remember, right. you know, the flip side of immunogenicity is reactogenicity. We'd like to have all of one and none of the other. It doesn't work that way. I heard Paul Offit, the vaccinologist, say the immune system has a terrible public health. So how long does that last? And can it make you generally more immunogenic so that when you get filler so, or something else again, it'll you'll have that again well, even without the vaccine? So in general, in general, immunogenicity should be at its, and, and I'm using the word very carefully, immunogenicity, ramps up to around 14 days, could be 10, could be 11, whatever, around 14 days. The reactogenicity, and of course we can't, and I use that in relation to all the other reactogenicity symptoms, not talking about the dermal fillers because the numbers are too small. The reactogenicity really should, uh, in terms of the symptoms they have, really is usually only two to three days. I will say that Moderna was much more comprehensive and I felt like they were much more transparent in the data that they released on reactogenicity, there is, a, there is a, a small number of patients that it does go beyond that, that frame, those two to three days. But the vast, vast majority of patients, that reactogenicity should be gone by two to three days, um, even if the immunogenicity, continue, you know, their immune response continues to ramp up. But, the two weeks made but, sense but to Doris, let me let me clarify some because I think this is the confusing point, okay? I don't think that it's necessarily how long after the filler to get the vaccine, because these patients had responses six months or more after filler, that much we know. Because once the, the, the antigen or something that's gonna react in the filler is there, six months, it's still gonna be there. I think the key issue is the reverse. It's how long you wait to give the filler after the vaccine. And well, that part, you know, I agree with you, Mark. That part you can't do much about, right? Because, you know, right. people, we're seeing reactions six months, a year, a year and a half after. I saw somebody in the board certified dermatology group, a dermatologist who'd had filler over a year ago, got the Moderna vaccine, and she posted pictures of her facial swelling around where she had the filler. So you can't really tell somebody to never have filler. Um, and in those cases, we can say that if you have a reaction, we can address it. But if you can, around after the vaccine, have a period of time where you can minimize a reaction that you have more control over, that's where you want to affect your control, that's right? That's probably, but, but what you're hearing from Adam is that you're getting maximum uh, effect at two weeks. The, the rooms, the Which is what I've been saying. Up, but then you shouldn't be doing, you should wait more than two weeks then right. to, to give them filler after the vaccine. If you want to, but I'm not sure that's the way this is working anyway. I don't think there's any evidence that you give the vaccine at any point, then you give the filler and you're going to get a reaction to it. I think it's the reverse. I don't, so I'm not sure there's, there's any reason to say 
you know, you have to avoid for a month, et cetera, whatever it is, the filler from that perspective. You know, My if somebody has the flu, would you give them an injection? Or if somebody has COVID, you wouldn't inject them. So for me, with the vaccine, if you give someone a vaccine, you're creating a response as if they've had that infection. You should wait a period of time for that to calm down. Because I always say you want someone in optimal health when you do an injection. And after a vaccine, your body is revving up to protect itself against something. So it makes sense in my mind. That's just my rationalization for it. I don't, I'm, I'm not saying it's 100% grounded in science, but just like I wouldn't inject somebody who was sick, I'd wanna wait till they were all better. It's the same thing with a vaccine and that two weeks, let's say in a day makes sense to me. No, I, I agree with you completely, Doris. Right, but I think the two weeks, I, I'm concerned about the issue of two weeks because again, from what Adam said and from what I understood, that's the maximum amount of revving of the immune system. So if anything, you know, you want to wait a little while longer for it to wane. And remember, there's two elements of the immune system. There's the, the antibodies, the humoral part, and then there's the, the cellular part. It's probably the cellular part that's giving us some long-lasting immunity rather than just the antibodies here. Are you guys asking every patient now when they come in, have you been vaccinated? Say that again. Are you asking every yeah. patient that comes in? It's or in my have checklist. You received... I, I ask everybody, and I've been asking them for, for two years. Okay, but specifically for COVID. Yeah. The answer is, uh, the answer is yes. The short answer is yes. But and if, they, and if they've gotten a vaccine or they're planning on getting a vaccine, you want to wait two weeks after their second dose. No, I tell my patients, I give them a choice. They're asking me, basically. They're saying, you know, I'm, I'm going to get the vaccine soon. Should I have fillers now? And I said, and I tell them, I said, the data, we don't know from the data. It's, it's, a, it's a very rare phenomenon, okay? And it's up to you, we can do it. If you want to wait, I'm happy to wait. That's exactly the conversation I'm but having. What, how long are you gonna tell them to wait then? Till, till at least three weeks or four weeks after they had the vaccine. Second the dose, Adam, second, dose. second dose. Second and there's dose. two doses of the vaccine, don't forget. So, so it's yeah. three or four weeks after the second dose. Right, Adam, after the second dose. Can I ask Adam a quick question? So what Mark has talked, about, about where it drops off at that two weeks, in my mind, the way I think about it is that it's a pretty steep drop off that you rev up and then your system calms down. Yeah, or is it a slow slope? Is it a slope? Well, well, you, so, so the, the response to that, of course, depends upon what you're measuring. Um, if you're measuring, and, and what we almost always measure is the antibodies. Um, uh, That's what so, I was talking about. Yeah, so if you just look at that, what, what we actually see, um, I, I, I should have a PowerPoint slide. Um, is that your antibodies, you know, rev up fast, and then they actually pretty much plateau after that first dose. The IgM. And that second dose, that second dose is a true booster in the sense of booster. And, and I'm very careful whenever I use the word booster versus revaccination, because the response to that second dose is not just a one plus one equals two, it's a one plus one equals four sort of thing it's a synergistic adam if you have had the vax if you've had the vaccine and you don't have igg after 10 to 14 days is that indicative that you're a non-responder because we have those veritor tests the antibody tests and my uh 14 day response was negative for both igm and igg okay so um you got a, a placebo <laughs> 
you were you were involved in a clinical trial and you didn't know. That. So so first of all, the, the 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 first thing that comes to mind is we assume we have a correlative protection. We do not have a correlative protection either by mechanistic standards or by quantitative standards. Now that being said, we the vast majority of vaccines clearly either like rock solid info or, or mass amounts of circumstantial evidence shows that antibodies are at least the or at least a partial mechanistic uh, correlative protection. Um, so and, and it makes sense that there has to be some antibody um, association with that. Um, it, we also know that different, um, and, and I don't know all the different serologic studies. I haven't had to dig into those the, the serological tests. But there are different types that measure different um, parts of the, of the, of the virus, uh, of the uh, immune response to the virus. And so there can be different sensitivities and specificities that could affect your situation. The other thing is, um, it makes perfect sense. There is going to be a cell, a cellular mediated immune response here as well. Probably, it probably will not be. Um, assuming it works like other vaccines in this instance, and I, I think there's a good chance that it will. Um, it's probably not so important early on as it is later. Right. That that cellular mediated response is going to be more important later. And by the way all the data we have on that, which again is all serologic, and it's actually kind of hard to measure the cellular mediated response. It's not nearly as easy as antibodies. Right. Um, these two vaccines look really good on that front. So right. I'm actually, on a durability perspective, just this is out of out of the range of your question, I would say that I, I'm actually quite hopeful that there will be a real durable response to these two vaccines. So let me ask a question based on that mechanism of what you just said. My my thought, and again, not based on study, but maybe you know the, the science brains here can, can comment, is when you get an in, inflammatory response to a filler, it's much more likely to be cell-mediated immunity than it is to be humoral. And if, to take that further, if it takes a couple months or three months to maximize your cellular immunity, now you're talking about Maybe we need to wait six months to get a filler. Well, I don't know. It depends on what that is. You're, you're talking about something specific, and I think it's probably much more nonspecific. I think you're having a cross-reactive immune reaction to the filler. I don't think it's specific cellular-mediated immunity because the, o the only way that, that that's really associated is probably that there's a biofilm associated with it. And, and that's, you know, for certain type of fillers, we know that, you know, biofilms definitely are there. They've been shown to be there, et cetera, you know, in a percentage of patients. And when Doris talks about the, uh, the dentist, that's really the key issue. That's what you're trying to prevent when you're injecting new filler uh, is a biofilm. But I think what we're probably seeing is a much more nonspecific uh, inflammatory response um, you know, to the revved up immune system rather than something more specific. And, and I would say also, even if it were specific, like even if we had data saying, hey, these responses are cellular mediated inflammatory things, even if we did, um, you, st you actually start creating, remember there are, there, there are multiple different 
um, cells and um, cytokines and things associated in cell mediated immunity, we start seeing that easily within a couple weeks of the first dose. Right. It's just that that builds up even more over time and becomes likely more prominent as a as a protective measure later on. So is anybody, is anybody going to use Sculptra and Radius more or drop off using like? No, because I don't think it's it's that specific. Number one, you know, from that perspective. But also, I can tell you why it's not specific cell-mediated immunity is there's multiple cases of people having this inflammatory response, getting fillers again, and having no response. So if it was specific immunity to something in the fillers, whether it's BDBE, whatever it might be, it doesn't make sense that you'd inject them again and they wouldn't get a response. So it's not specific. You know, there, every evidence is not specific. It's much more you know, a non-specific revving up an immune system. Remember the face is one of these immune um, uh, specific areas where we have a lot of protection, okay? The face has got a lot of immune cells. We've got glands, we've got lymph nodes, we've got everything all around there. The body is, you know, very protective of that area because of all of our, you know, sense organs, et cetera. So the face is an area where if you're gonna get an inflammatory response, it's gonna build up you know, fairly uh, straightforward and fairly specific. Yeah, but what I'm saying is there hasn't been a conversation to what we would use if we did see somebody present with facial swelling and whether there was erythema or not. I just want to know from everybody's perspective, who would start with systemic steroids that has been suggested or would somebody start with an anti-inflammatory type of antibiotic like clarithromycin? I tend to go with the clarithromycin first and, and not with the steroid first. And I would probably see them back in a couple of days and see how they're doing. I'm just wondering what other people would do. And in reference to Amy's question about using other categories of fillers, I still feel better about the having the, at least the ability to try to dissolve something that was persistent or problematic with hyaluronic acid than using those other products. So I think the fact that we don't know what was used but we have seen reactions like this. Typically the reactions like this have been to hyaluronic acid, probably just because they're used a lot more and people will continue to use it more just because there's a way out. So, so I think that Joel, the, the key issue here is I think that antihistamines uh, sometimes uh, can be helpful and steroids. I think the idea of using a clarithromycin or something like that you're really going towards the biofilm slash inflammatory you know, pathway from that perspective. And I don't think that these reactions from everything that I understand fit that category. I think it's much more of an acute um, uh, response here. Uh, and it's my understanding from just a limited amount of data that's out there that you know, whether it's a medrol dose pack, whether it's uh, uh, antihistamines in combination, they respond very, very quickly. Um, that's, that's what I that's what I read too, and I mean again, I probably would go the steroid antihistamine but route first. Are you going to give a steroid if somebody has just been vaccinated? So, so there's great I'm question. Not concerned about so um, you may agree, Mark, but you know the immune um, the actual immune suppression caused by steroids is right. is is not as much as people think, and it is often predicated upon route right. dose. <laughs> And duration and short-term bursts like you would in this case i would not might it blunt it for a day or two 
right. maybe, but I would not at all expect it to have a material effect long-term on the protective effect of the vaccine. Yeah, I, I, I agree. That's why I started with the antibiotic. So if, that, if that's the answer to it, Adam, that just solved everything. Because I, I would think that, you know, an, an antibiotic would be a lot more benign to use in the setting of a recent vaccination. But if, if you're saying that the level of yeah. suppression of the immune system is not significantly affected, then I think that that's... You're just yeah, I think, Joel, I think our big issue has always been with steroids, with he wound healing. And I think it has a much more significant effect on wound healing than it does in immune response. And that's, and that's for two reasons. One is that you're talking potentially about different doses and durations. And also you're really talking about the cell mediated side of things there because right. you need cells in wound healing far more than antibodies, of course. Right. So yeah, I'm not worried about a burst of steroids. Right. This is one of the aspects of the report. I know the ASDS is asking to report it to them, et cetera. But I think within a very short period of time, considering the, the uh, amount of people that are getting this, and the interesting thing is, where are you gonna see the fillers? It's probably gonna be in healthcare workers much more than it's gonna be in the over 65, although it's probably in both from that so, perspective. So I have a question. I have a question that I was thinking about today because now everybody's talking about, okay, my staff is already a buzz. <clears throat> What can we do once we're all vaccinated? You know, like they're okay. ready. Okay, so that's wait, that's wait. Let me just bring up the one thing I wanted to say. What we got was this little stupid card that is handwritten with, that you got the vaccine with some scribbly, you know, the lot number and all that. When we have to travel or prove that we got the vaccine, that thing is so easy to make up. Like, you know, you could easily manufacture that or you know, people could be selling them. How are we going to have real proof? So there's going to be a thing called com the common app type thing. It's it's a it's an IBM slash other thing, a very secure vaccine passport, if you will. And you're going and and between you and your doctor, you have to verify everything in it. And it's not out yet. It's being okay. but, but all the major airlines, all the major hotels, cruise ships. They've all signed on that they're going to be part of this, and um, but it's not out yet. But but here's the here's the issue, and but I think this is the important issue. The issue, Amy, is what it means, I and I think this is one of the big things that nobody's talking about. If you've been vaccinated, if you're if you've been if you've had COVID, it doesn't mean you can't get infected again. You're not going to get sick. But you certainly, that's how it works. That's how the immunology works. You can get infected and you can probably give it to other people. If you have a, a high enough viral load, you're just not gonna get sick because your body's gonna mount an immune response. And well, this is the question you know, the, of, of what it's gonna do. So first of all, it's not a, um, immunity is not an either or phenomenon. And um, one of the issues here is um, the analogy I make is real estate. You know, you want to have comps. Um, there is no good comp for COVID-19 or for COVID-19 vaccine. So um, uh, just a few random thoughts. I'll just start. It, it won't be. Uh, I, I want to think it's logically connected, but here it goes. So first of all, 95% um, protective against disease. It is... Um, hard. So, so imagine, imagine you have immune barriers, basically. Your first step is you get infected. Okay. The second step is enough viral load builds up that you either um, get disease or, or don't. You could be asymptomatic. And somewhere along the line, you, you also become contagious. 
And then the third step is you get really bad disease, like it just goes all around, all hell breaks loose. Okay. So your first immune response, ideally, it'd be 100% protective against that first step. So you don't even get um, infected. Um, examples of that, um, the best examples we have are those examples of viruses and the vaccines meant to protect against them that um, replicate, infect and replicate primarily in the blood. So they're viremias, um, measles, mumps, rubella, um, chicken pox, um, zoster doesn't count because it's already in you. Um, chicken pox is another good example. Uh, polio is another good example. It's not that you get infected in the blood, it's that primary replication occurs in the blood. Uh, um, Non-respiratory ones, hep A, hep B are, are good examples of that. And so the reason why they're one of the reasons, not the sole reason, but one of the reasons why the vaccines are so protective against those is, is literally location. That the viremia is in the blood and you get injected in your arm, uh, goes to the, the dendritic cells, go to the lymph nodes, and there's, I mean, it's really a cool process. But nonetheless, it, it's almost directly, it's not directly in the blood, but the immune response essentially is directly in the blood. So you have this location phenomenon here, which is very important. And that was driving, the early predictions were, hey, we're going to get 70% effectiveness. That's all we're going to get. And we're going to be thrilled because 70% effective will be wonderful. And then lo and behold, you get 95% effectiveness. Now, he, I, I, this is my own, I, I've heard some rumblings on this, and I, I think there's some good science to back it up. Um, again, there are no good comps here because you say, well, what, what are other examples of a, of a virus that infects and replicates primarily in the respiratory mucosa. Now, I'm not, a, I'm not a histologist, so I can't narrow it down to the exact level, but it's the respiratory mucosa. So, um, so, so uh, what are examples? Well, um, one, the only viral example we have is, is influenza. Um, well, that's a terrible comp because um, you got two major uh, immunogenic proteins, hemoglobin and neuraminidase, you got like five to six different types of that. None of them are, are all that immunogenic at all. And none of them are not nearly as immunogenic as this damn thing. So, so that's a bad comp. So then you say, well, what about the, the bacteria? So Hib and pneumococcal and meningococcal, those all replicate primarily in, 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 the, in the respiratory tract, although obviously they can be invasive and go into your blood. Um, but you don't really, um, we, we don't really check for infection of those. All you can really look for is we didn't have people get admitted with meningitis. But you can check for respiratory carriage. Now, we don't have viral carriage. But we know that those, that those vaccines like eliminate respiratory carriage, pretty much eliminate, at least for the serotypes. So we don't have a good comp. So you say, OK, so what are the differences here and why I'm actually much more excited about this, this vaccine, the first two? Um, so this spike protein is so much more immunogenic than anything else we have. And we know that one of the key determinants of vaccine response is how good of an antigen do you have? This damn thing is really freaking immunogenic, which by the way, is the whole reason for the reactogenicity. Don't blame the vaccine, blame the spike protein. Um, and so, so it's really immunogenic. And so, well, that's that. And, and so, and then you say, well, what are the odds that if you have those three steps, infection, then disease slash contagiousness, then really bad disease, what are the odds that you're 95% protected against disease and that all occurs after the first step has already happened? What are the odds that, that 
your reduction is 95% of disease, but your percent reduction in infection is zero. Um, we don't know, but it sort of boggles my mind to think that it would be zero. Um, and, and, and so we, the only data we have right now that, that sort of teases this, um, and it's descriptive, it would, the studies were not designed for it. Moderna has the data right now. It absolutely applies to Pfizer. They did, um, they were actually testing everyone for P, with PCRs on the day before their dose or right before they, their dose was administered and, the, and right before their second dose was administered. Now, and what they found was that there was two thirds less people with, people with asymptomatic infection before the second dose. Now you say, hey, it wasn't designed for this. The numbers are really small. Yeah, it could be entirely happenstance. It could be entirely chance. Um, I'm, my hunch is that it's not entirely chance. My hunch is, and, and so I'm not gonna give a number, but I think that there is actually prevention of infection occurring, although we can't say that yet. One of the key fact, one of the key things we'll look at to see that occur isn't so much clinical trials, although Moderna will have that, that data in the next two to three months for their patients, where they'll be able to say before dose two in all of our patients, this is the percentages, and that'll give us a really good idea. But what we'll look at over the next two to three months is epidemiology, um, case control studies, things like that. And when you see the numbers go down in the population out of proportion to what has been vaccinated, when you see that indirect protect, protection, that'll be a big piece of the puzzle. So sounds like you're saying that people who get the vaccine are generally not going to get sick. They're definitely not going to get sick. I feel confident saying that as long as they have a decent immune system. And, and, and I don't think you have to have a fabulous immune system by any means. So Adam, um, I, have a, I have a very uh, simple, maybe practical question. Do you feel like there could be any difference if you get the first shot and I uh, and then in one arm and then versus another arm? Is there any rationale for you getting in the same arm? Um, so uh, in terms of effectiveness, no, that that won't matter. In terms of safety, that's it's a, I've heard it bantered about. And um, I think it's reasonable if someone wants to switch. Um, I think that's reasonable. I will say on the on the derm side of things, um, because by and large, they have not appeared to be dermatologically active vaccines, which kind of makes sense because the spike protein and the virus don't appear to be particularly dermatologically active, even though obviously there are some, you know, viral type things, you know, that occur. Um, you know, so you don't see a lot in the clinical trials that would lead you to believe that. However, anecdotally, so you know, anecdote is not data, but nonetheless. Um, some people do, you wonder if there is some um, uh, local, you know, local reacti reactogenicity that could be um, hyped up. I did have one patient, one uh, colleague of mine. It was pretty impressive. And what was impressive about it was that it happened a week after the vaccination. Same arm, same spot, pretty bright red, clearly demarcated, um, swollen warm, itchy, not like terrible, no systemic symptoms of any kind, all localized. She had nothing. Yeah. First or second vaccine? First or second shot? First, first dose. That was the first dose. Uh, I'm still doing the second one in the other arm. 
So wait, so, so that's why I'm, I'm, that, I'm, I'm recommending people, although we don't have data, I'm saying do this do the other arm just in case. Yeah. So, so there's propylene glycol, I believe, in these in the vaccine. So this could have nothing to do with vaccine. It could be a response to propylene glycol, which is very fairly common. So I wouldn't- Peg, PG, propylene ethyl glycol or something. Even yeah, the, yeah. the arm, couldn't that just be a bruise in the muscle? I mean- just from the actual injection, as opposed to anything having to do with the- That was a big, that was a big bruise. <laughs> it could be. The only question is whether you're going to benefit yourself by having more of a reaction by doing it in the same arm and, you know, potentially inducing your immunity a little bit more so. No data. It's, yeah, I'd say it's all, the immune system has to be, it has to be systemic. If it's not systemic, then we're toast anyway. I want to end by a question that I have, and I've been asked by other people about your offices and vaccines. If are you, and it's a yes, no answer. Are you going to make vaccines mandatory for everybody that works in your office? Yes or no? And if the answer is no, if the answer is yes, what do you do if somebody says they don't want a vaccine? So I'm going to, I've got to run to another call. So I'm going to answer very quickly, but we, we have, we have two staff members out of our staff of 50 who have not had the vaccine. One is thinking about it and one doesn't want to have it at this point. I think there was some question about she desires to get pregnant and I haven't seen any anything related to any concern about that. That's something to open up to discussion. But I will say among everybody who's had the vaccine and then I can say that the majority, almost everybody in our office has also had fillers and has had recent fillers. We haven't had any issue fortunately yet and I haven't had any friends, including all of you guys, who vaccinated their entire staff that have had any issues as well. So this, this is probably a very good sort of perspective of what's out there because these people have gotten fillers recently. They've gotten fillers a while ago. They've all gotten vaccinated. And fortunately, there hasn't been issues. Right. I think, again, this is something that's mild. It's transient. It will probably go away on its own without treatment. And fortunately, we know that antihistamines and steroids work in these couple cases. I'm going to go around. Amy, what are you going to do in your office? Mandatory. And if they say I no? Everybody, this year, I made everybody get a flu shot. And anybody that didn't get a flu shot was fired. Okay. So everybody did it. Joel Schlesinger. I think I'm tending towards mandatory as well. Okay. Mark Nestor. So if we can get it, <laughs> that's yeah, I'm saying I'm saying assume it's available for everybody. Then, then you have yes. a lot of employees. However, I, the big question here, and maybe Adam can weigh in because I still don't understand the data because we don't really have data, is what type of responses are we getting from people who have had COVID? Because I have now seven or eight people in my office who, either, who thank God, have been asymptomatic, but who definitely have had COVID. So the question really is, yeah, yes, I mean, the CDC is saying vaccines anyway. And I think part of that is nobody kind of knows necessarily if they've had it or not, et cetera. But, you know, the question really is, do I, you know, force people who have had it to get the vaccine anyway? Do we think that they're immune? And unfortunately, Adam, this is where we should really have data on whether they can be in, get infected and become infectious again. We know very few people get sick again, very, very few people, okay? But in terms of just you know, having it to be able to infect other people, I would think we'd have data on this by now concerning the well, number of people who've had it. So, so a, a few things on that. Um, first of all, 
the way I have phrased it to individuals who have had COVID and, and, and thinking about the vaccine, the first thing I tell them is get it. Like I, my recommendation is get it. There is no evidence of harm. The antibody dependent, uh, the enhancement you were speaking of about that people were concerned about early on. There's no evidence of that at all in animal or human studies. And we have lots of patients who've gotten it now. The important second thing is I say, like right now where our, um, I'm assuming you can still hear me, yeah, I think. Yes. Is that right now where doses are somewhat limited, I would say it is reasonable for someone who let's say they were infected a month or two ago to tell them, well, if you wanna wait a bit, you know, three months is pretty decent evidence, three months you're protected. So if, if like you taking that dose from someone who hasn't been infected, like, okay, that's reasonable right now. But looking forward, um, I would, you know, I don't hesitate at all to say get vaccinated. Now, in terms of your question around more data around protection of infected and then infectiousness, you know, the interesting thing I was, there was a lot of discussion on the ACAP, the CDC's advisory committee on this. And one of the things that everyone there agreed on, or nearly everyone, one of the things they said is the real way we're going to know protection is not so much Part, partially, it's the asymptomatic, you, you test the vaccine recipients, you know, for PCR, but it's, it's really contact tracing and epidemiologic studies. And so those are the two things that we're unfortunately going to have to wait on. And yeah, but, uh, contact tracing is so shitty in this country. I'm not sure. Yes. Ever have All right, Doris, what are you going to do in your office? I assume everybody's vaccinated. Everybody but one, and they're all incredibly grateful for the opportunity. I mean, they are jumping up and down for joy. I told them today, I helped them all get signed up for it, and they could not thank me enough. So I, you know, I think it's not just saying we, we're forcing them or making it mandatory. It's like it's a privilege to get vaccinated, and um, and they're lucky to get it. So nobody wants to get sick in my office, and nobody wants to miss work. I think I wonder if it's reasonable to say that, you know, if you don't want to get the vaccine, but then you get sick with COVID, you don't get paid for that time off because you could have had the vaccine. So if you pass up the opportunity, it's not that you get fired, it's that you are going to have to take time off and you're not going to get covered for it. One last thing to ask Adam is that, you know, this is a new vaccine. It's not FDA approved. It's approved for emergency use. It's an emergency use authorization. We're sort of acting like it's been around for decades and we know everything about it when we don't. And so, so I feel really badly forcing people or trying to convince them of something that I don't think we have all the data. We don't have two years of data. Yeah, so there's there's a few, uh, they're listening. There's a lot of things that came to mind. Um, first of all, um, I, I heard someone say this and I, it's true. Um, I will breathe a sigh of relief when we've had three, when, when we have six weeks follow-up data following 3 million doses, because yeah. if there is a true, I'm, I'm not worried about two years from now, it, you know, true vaccine, delayed vaccine reactions. 90 days. There, there, it's not, there's nothing that's zero, of course, mm. in medicine, but we're talking 42 days. The definition has always been, there's tons of, even the Guillain-Barre, even the really strange rare stuff, it's six weeks. Right, that's and it. So the issue is not, is not time, it's number of doses. And so we're gonna, you know, we've had three weeks of Pfizer. Um, we're, and, and we're up to 5 million doses total. We're, we're gonna have so much data to, to put down concerns of, of the rare reactions. I think we're gonna have a lot of data very soon. That's great. All right, we got to wrap. We got to wrap it up, everybody. So, special honor guest Adam, very great to have you. you.
<laughs> this was Thank great, you. great to have him. Thank everybody. 